Hey, Shai, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. I hope you're not bored by me by now. No, I uh, I plan uh, another 10 sessions with you, you know. To <laughs> I can talk the... for another 10, you know. <laughs> Just never Yeah, let's ends. see. Do you remember the most important question from last time, the overflow question? Yeah, how, d how did we come to the name Codename 1? Exactly. Which is, I think, a funny story that kind of uh, goes to a lot of the subjects I'm talking about. So uh, it was sort of a random thing because when we started shopping around uh, the idea of Codename One, we wanted to raise funding. So Ken and I talked to two other friends, uh, which I'll leave nameless, although they're fine, you know, they're mm -hmm. decent people, but eventually they ended up not being part of Codename One. And we wanted them to essentially be our more business-like partners. And uh, one of them was supposed to be the CEO. He already founded a company before, so we thought, and he had the right type of connections and everything, and, and he was very good at that. Another one was an MBA, although both of them very technical. So it was a really good match on, on paper. So we went to practically every VC in the country, and that, that uh, uh, former founder, wasn't able to get any funding and he insisted that we must go with a VC and can't go with angels, all sorts of things like that. That sort of, uh, that's one of the reasons I think I later on failed because he kind of convinced me that we needed to go with VCs. Anyway, we repeatedly failed. Okay, and eventually... now to, to, to listeners and all not business and all savvy people, what's the difference between VC and angels? Ah, okay, sorry. Uh, so uh, VC is a venture capital firm. It's essentially a an organization with a specific structure that's meant to fund you. And they're built in a very interesting way of sort of uh, uh, capital is promised by uh, the limited partners, which despite their name are actual the, the actual people and organizations with money. And there's lots of uh, complexities regarding what uh, venture capital and in some degrees, you know, some angels are crossed into that line and vice versa at, at, at a certain scale. But generally, venture capital is considered much larger and larger companies need money from VCs because you'd want to grow and you need continued, continued investments. Angels have this sort of glass ceiling. To a lesser degree nowadays, but back then it was uh, more pronounced, of funding. And being backed only by angels essentially puts a limit on the size that you can grow. So angels have a lot of advantages over VCs because it's usually just a person or a small group of people who literally write you a check. So you're meeting the person who actually has the money at some point, where a mm -hmm. VC is sort of you're meeting an organization that makes a calculated risk. Eventually, it's mm -hmm. some person who signs the check, but still, it's not their money. They need to show accountability. They have all sorts of constraints. An angel is just a person who can make a judgment call uh, at the end of the day. And in many regards, it's easier to raise money from angels. It's also a much smaller check uh, in mm -hmm. most cases. So 
we looked at the amount on the check and decided that angels were probably not for us because back then, uh, those days, angels would give you hundreds of thousands of dollars at most. Mm-hmm. And VCs easily gave you over a million dollars to start. And today, these numbers have nothing to do with, uh, you know, when I worked with Lightland, they raised from an angel at, uh, I think, $3.7 million. So the numbers today are very different than they were back then. And that's just the 10-year difference. Mm-hmm. So we went to practically every VC in the country and essentially got a sort of rejection. VCs rarely actually reject you because uh, it's kind of like a dating game sort of situation where you need Mm -hmm. to sort of woo the the VC and convince them that you're in demand, that you're the hot new startup and they need to chase you and you're doing them a favor by taking their money. And the first round was obviously lots of fishing and nothing on the hook. And the guy that was the CEO kind of, I think he grew cold over that. And uh, we decided to part ways. But one of the pivotal moments in that that, uh, process was because of the name. So when we started, we needed to create a presentation for investors, and I was responsible for that, for, for the whole process. And you obviously need a name for the company on the slides. So I said, okay, we need to find a code name for during development. So I wrote code name, obviously. And since this was, uh, you know, the number one, so I wrote one, just code mm-hmm. name one. I just sort of just as a temporary thing, not an actual name of a company. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, obviously it doesn't, it won't be the actual name. We'll, we'll name it later on. Mm-hmm. And we showed it to VCs and everything. And they were most of them were okay. They didn't really even discuss it all that much. And one of them at a relatively later point said, oh, that, that's a great name. Did you grab it? And up until that point, we didn't even actually think about grabbing the URL for that because we didn't really think of it as the name. Mm-hmm. So we didn't bother. But that uh, partner essentially said, oh, no, obviously, it's already everything's taken, every permutation, codename one dot, that, that, this, and the other. And all sorts of, uh, you know, sort of made that up, even though none of us knew, because we Mm -hmm. didn't think. So we were literally in that uh, session with the VCs, and I checked, and it was all available. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, it's something that's so easily verifiable, and he just pulled it out like that. And that sort of soured him on us to some degree, uh, at least on me. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, you know, it's saying, oh, I'm an idiot. I didn't even think about checking that as something. Mm-hmm. I know it goes sometimes was it the, against the, the VC guy, right? Who, this was a VC guy. Who, the VC guy asked, asked about uh, the name and the person who was supposed to be our CEO said, mm-hmm. oh, it's all, it's all taken up already. You know, okay. there's no codename. It's not available, okay. codename one. Mm-hmm. And I checked, and not only codename one is one a word or one a number, both of them were available in a .com, mm-hmm. which was amazing, but, but it was. So I instantly grabbed them, obviously. Mm-hmm. and uh, but, but also it kind of uh, created some of uh, friction between uh, me and that CEO, uh, supposed CEO, because, you know, 
I understand why he did that. He didn't want to seem like an idiot, which we all felt felt like idiots because we didn't even check if that name was available. But, you know, it's not a big deal because we didn't think that would be the name. So it's it's not really. But, but you know, grabbing the domain name of, of your codename is kind of like a one-on-one situation. You know, mm-hmm. just kind of do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and... And... You know, yeah, but I, I mean, inventing. what I don't understand yeah. usually, right? What I would do in the CEO case, mm-hmm. you could even online check the name, right? I could say, yeah, no, yeah, code, he was talking. You could, yeah, I could say, no, code name one. This was just, you know, this was the Atlanta accident. Let's double check that and we grab it right now. It would be actually a cool situation, right? Yeah, yeah. So he didn't want to show ignorance. And I'm always for showing ignorance. I mean, but I think this is not ignorance. This is cool, cool situation, right? Because uh, this code name one yeah. was in the templates on the on the slide, so you could actually say, uh, "Hey, this is actually a placeholder," and and the other one says, "Okay, but this is a great name." It's like, "Oh, cool! Then let's make the place placeholder to a name." Yeah. Right. So it yeah, could that's be, uh, exactly actual... my thought. Yeah. That that's what I did. I grabbed the name on the spot, but I didn't want to embarrass him in front of the VC because he just lied about it. Mm-hmm. You know, he said it was all taken. And, and how it happened I mean, that the codename one was on the slide? Because uh, it was on purpose as placeholder I for you? I just made that up. Yeah, I yeah. placed it as a placeholder name, sort of, because codename And the CEO didn't standard. knew that? You know, people what? use that. And did he knew you, that. Did he knew that okay. exactly. He, he just didn't really... It didn't occur to us to use that as the name of the company. Yeah, but you, you could know, just say it was something done, that right? was just a placeholder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was sort of okay. a placeholder that became the name. And, okay. And... Uh, and the fact that it was available it was pretty shocking to all of us mm-hmm. because we assumed, you know, probably taken because every name is taken. Mm-hmm. And I guess it wasn't the most obvious mm-hmm. name possible. And, you know, one of the first companies um, when I started... But the code uh, name one is a uh, great name. It's a really nice <laughs> name. Yeah, if so, I saw this, this is really, I don't know why, this is like, you know, um, how it's called, you know, the President's uh, uh, Air Force one, right? Yeah. So yeah. one of the first companies when I started, uh, when I created mm-hmm. the BBS, I called it Seventh Segment. And I wanted to build a company based on that name. So when it actually came a time to start a company way before that, and uh, um, years, years before uh, even my consulting company, I thought, wait, I need to grab a uh, domain, which was relatively early in the days of the internet. It wasn't something automatic. Turns out seventh segment was taken by practically everyone. There was every permutation of seventh mm-hmm. segment was taken. And the amusing part is one of the seventh segment, I don't remember if it was .com or some other, there was a guy and there was a picture of the guy. Back then people put the picture of, of the person mm-hmm. who owned the domain in the domain. <laughs> and the guy looked just like me. Okay. (laughs) Which showed me, you know, how conformist we all are in our field. We even look the same. And, you know, same ideas, same thoughts, everything. Maybe you attended a conference. This was an older conference before DevOps. The name was uh, 33 Degrees. And I also like the name. Like a really interesting, uh, great name for a conference. And I asked why, mm-hmm. and it, I think it was a science fiction movie or something. So I asked, you know, the organizer, because the name was a catchy name, and they renamed it to DevOps, which is a bit boring, but uh, yeah. And uh, and uh, this was nice, and I, I told you a similar story. I tell you a similar story, but not with um, with no outcome, basically, but it's funny. Uh, I also uh, already told it um, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the podcast, but um, 
uh, in early days, I created a um, CMS system with servlets, servlets based. And I don't know whether you remember San Francisco framework. You heard about that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was from IBM. There were books about that. You know, I remember still patents from the, from um, from from the framework like Key and Keyable, <laughs> it were like accounting uh, accounting um, um, patents. And back then, you know, San Francisco framework was like a nice thing to have in e-commerce space. So what I did, um, I measured the performance of servlets. And uh, what I did, I noticed that inheritance is an impact on early Java performance and synchronizes the impact. So what I did, I created a servlet uh, with methods which were synchronized and final. And uh, to recognize that in the version number during uh, load tests, and what I did, it was like version 1 SF, synchronized final. And I was also always a freelancer. So uh, I, I spent time in other projects, came back, and everyone talked about San Francisco version. And we were actually two people who built the entire system. So uh, there was no one else. And I say, what do you mean by San Francisco? Okay, obviously, we have San Francisco version. Because this SF was visible to marketing. And someone asked in a meeting, what is actually SF? You know, And a marketing guy said, obviously, it is San Francisco edition. And, um, and then we had to implement the connector no afterwards, which was not actually that there was no point of using this. And um, and um, and uh, we did it somehow. But uh, this was my story with SF. And in the same project, it was also interesting. Um, I said or wrote, I cannot remember, that uh, we could call our system Star Portal because there was Star Office, you know, back then, and Star Money and whatever. And I would say, okay, Star Portal, cool name. And the uh, PM or marketing guy misunderstood me and understood star bottle, you know, like a bottle, not portal, bottle with water in it. And as you remember, star bottle, he um, back then was genie, genie in a bottle. And the conclusion because was star bottle. Star, yeah, actually, I wanted to say star portal. He understood star bottle, yeah. and then he presented star bottle as a name. I didn't care, but I was I was like, why Star Bottle? I thought we were building a portal. And there were some, you know, some Java developers in the meeting say, Bottle, are you are you using Genie, Java Intelligent Network Infrastructure? And he's uh, yeah. he looked at me and, and I looked away, right? And I say, Of course. And I was like, oh man. And then we had you know to, <laughs> to integrate Genie in, in this framework. So this was actually the two stories, which uh were my my mistake, but it I think this is really funny because this SF San Francisco back then everything was San Francisco, and Genie was also very very uh, interesting technology for everyone and almost forgotten right now. I ask my guests, do you know yeah. Genie? And um, and the technology was actually it it is a, I, st- I still you know stealing ideas from Genie like leasing resource leasing and stuff is still great right now. Mm-hmm. But it's this completely different topic. We should back on track you know to Codename One. And we covered the story. I had. Question, because I look at Codename 1, what is the latest version do you support? It's just Java 11, I think, right? Java 8, actually, in terms of language support. Mm-hmm. Java 11 is the JDK that we build on top. Okay. So you can have Java 11 installed, but libraries are at a subset of Java 8 in terms of functionality, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I write a lot about newer versions of Java and the capabilities of Java I actually have a book coming up about uh, Java between 8 and 21. 
Uh, Your book? That I'm close to finishing. Yeah. Oh, pretty good. I'm just, just close to finishing it. Uh, and uh, I love the new features, lots of them. Mm-hmm. But for mobile programming, there isn't all that much there that that someone can really benefit from uh, at, on mobile. And yeah, the size difference is... Records doesn't make a difference for mobile because you don't have JPA or things like that. You don't have reflection. You can't really do all that much with it. Maybe serialization, but instead in Conium 1 we have something called properties, which uh, is something that I essentially created back in the day as a result of a discussion on the Java lobby. And later mm-hmm. on, the guys in JavaFX sort of copied some of my ideas from there. Where, you know, I actually contributed them. Mm-hmm. I had discussions with uh, Richard over uh, mm-hmm. over email. And, uh, and essentially, they took some of my ideas from there. And properties are kind of better than records for most things that we would need. Like they provide seamless serialization to XML uh, or JSON or stuff like uh, like that to database without Mm -hmm. all the reflection problems that would come or bytecode generation. So, and they're still relatively terse, not as terse as records, but still. Uh, and they support mutability and everything if you want it. And uh, okay, and that's this is Java's curious. So you don't you you mm-hmm. are not planning to support Java seventeen after you finish all your books. Uh, so we see a path ahead to do that because there's some tools similar to Retro Lambda mm-hmm. that exist to porting uh, newer versions of Java back. Um, I'm not sure if we want to go down that rabbit hole though. Okay. Uh, right now, Java eight is fine for for that particular use case, and uh, if, that, if yes, there is huge demand, w- obviously. What I thought, a desktop, right, could be interesting. Well, desktop is the same sort of thing as uh, as mobile for us. It's mobile mm-hmm. first, then desktop. So, okay. uh, I don't think someone will pick Codename one to build desktop applications. Think I thought would, about would that. Code name one to build, <laughs> yeah, but to build something that's mobile first, then desktop. Okay. Because that's basically, and I think desktop development directly is dead as, mm-hmm. as a result of lots of things. It's also the frameworks that are available, but also it's kind of a chicken and egg problem that people mm-hmm. prefer web applications uh, for desktop for most cases. There are special cases, but then usually people pick native development over over Java or cross-platform. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, you mentioned Java Lobby. I, I completely forgot about yeah. Java Lobby. I have what happened to them? I mean, they are not D Zone. Okay, they they D Zone is Java Lobby. Ah, it evolved into okay. that. It's essentially mm-hmm. the same uh, group of people. Uh, took the code of Java Lobby, sort of uh, did an actual rewrite to some degree. And even today, DZone, I still have the same user ID from Java Lobby, which is like, uh, I think, uh, 700 or 900, something like that. Mm-hmm. So it still appears there in some of the options somewhere, mm-hmm. uh, the legacy, because <laughs> it was very early on in the Java Lobby uh, stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was very active in the forums there. I don't know where that all that went. I was uh, active at the beginning. They asked me whether I... Uh could work with them so i got even a t-shirt at the beginning i remember and what happened then was uh, they pick my blog entries 
and published them as uh, on the zone. I was the author, author still, but the problem was that there are lots of comments on DZone and I never saw them because I had no time, you know, to scan constantly DZone. And then people were angry because I never answered, you know, the comments. And I said, okay, we, we, we shouldn't do this because uh, I cannot just scan, you know, the DZone. And then I stopped, you know. Yeah, it's like, the MVB program. MVP, yeah, exactly. Uh, and I said yes. Mm -hmm. I didn't understood what happened. I, I didn't care my blog because I never had uh, ads or something on that. But, you know, the fact that I didn't want to make people angry because there were some heated discussions and I never saw them because I cannot, I, maybe I looked you know, once a day at D-Zone, but I, I had no time to constantly, you know, search for the comments on, on the on the posts. So, and then I said, they okay, maybe... They improved there a bit. They have, now you get an email when there is a comment. It's actually a bit verbose because it doesn't really contain the specific comments. So you need to actually go into the article and look at the comments. So it's yeah, not it's okay. a great thing, but it, mm -hmm. but it works. Yeah, okay, so, but for me, you know, I was mainly yeah. consultant. At the, the articles were just fun if I was you know, in trains. I did something, mm -hmm. and otherwise, I just worked. So this was not not the right, you know, medium for me. So interesting. So Java Lobby became, this is what actually they're missing. But this one appeared, but I didn't recognize that Java Lobby disappeared. So, um, and yeah. uh, Java Blocks also disappeared, but Java Blocks was also huge back then. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Or Java.net, um, all of that stuff. Yeah, Java.net, yeah, of course, but uh, Java Blocks was not Sun. I think it was yeah. Atlassian uh, yeah. behind. And it was a huge uh, Java Block aggregator, which was nice. Everyone, this was actually you know, the morning routine to look what, what, what's up with, uh, with Java and Java Blocks. Okay, yeah. uh, we, we should refocus again. Otherwise, we will meet you know every week, uh, the entire year. So, <laughs> okay, I got you. Yeah. So, um, it makes sense. It's, it's a complete different focus of code name. It's uh, mobile first, so I understand fully, right? Yeah. Okay. So now, what I also did now, I took a look at your debug uh, agent stuff, and uh, you're writing a lot of stuff. Um, maybe we should cover a bit what's inside the debug agent book, at least you know the beginning today. So um, yeah, why? How you got idea to write the book? This is always interesting. You know, uh, so, how you got the idea to write a book about debugging? So in uh, 2019, did I talk about joining Lightrun and all of that stuff? Uh, so what joining? Joining Lightrun and all of that stuff. Did no. I talk about that? No. So in 2019, uh, the former CEO of uh, the SIDC, the Sun Israel Development Center. Uh, contacted me and he said he by then he left uh, quite a while back and he had an investment with this young startup and back then didn't have a name called them Athena or something like that and he said you know uh, meet the guys there are two guys nothing else working at we work and uh, he asked me to meet them and I met met up with them and they seemed interesting. I wasn't sure yet. You know, I didn't really mm -hmm. know them in any way. But because of the recommendation from that guy, I said, okay, I'll I'll join. And I became the first employee at Lightrun. And uh, Lightrun essentially created uh, a product. Uh, I wrote most of the stuff there, not the agent, but the server, the plugin, and all of, all of the wiring there uh, related to developer observability, which is okay. essentially uh, a form of observability that works kind of like a debugger. Mm. Up until now, uh, it, it wasn't the first in the field, but I think we are 
did something that's most closest uh, ma- uh, maps to debugging in production. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially a production debugger without all the faults of debugging in production. That means you can debug at scale, you uh, are secure, uh, and you can monitor everything and, and have the same control as any other observability solution. And it's kind of, instead of typical observability solutions that are mostly designed for DevOps uh, people, mm-hmm. this is more for developers, for things like a typical bug that you would solve with a breakpoint or something like that. You would solve it directly from your IDE by placing a monitoring that will give you the right, really refined result. So you can put a snapshot, which is like a breakpoint, but it doesn't stop. It doesn't break execution. Mm-hmm. and get a stack trace with all the variable values and everything like that. Uh, and you can u- make it conditional, so only a specific user would give you that information. So if a user complains about a bug in production, you can actually debug it. Mm-hmm. And we built that, and it took, a, took off. The company is doing really, really, really well. And I worked there for a while, and eventually, you know, the company grew really, really fast. They got lots of money, and they did investment properly. And they grew really fast. And at some point, it became tiring for me. And I mm-hmm. was about to quit. Uh, because, there, you know, when, when a company grows that a PR takes like a week to merge, that's when you need to leave. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so I decided I was going to leave. But then they suggested I'd become a developer advocate. And I said, okay. Uh, and I started doing developer advocacy, which was a new experience for me. Although technically, historically, I always did conferences and talks and uh, books and uh, and blogging and everything. It's not something new in that sense, but I never did it as a job. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like it uh, doing that. Uh, I no longer do it. I'm no longer at Lightrun, so I'm objective. Uh, and one of the things we said, you know, because what we're building is essentially a debugger, I should write about debugging. So I started writing a lot of my experience about debugging, about troubleshooting, mm-hmm. about observability, about all of these things that I learned over, uh, over the years. Mm-hmm. And as I wrote a lot of that material and uh, did videos and everything, a guy from APRES contacted me and said, you know, I think there's room for a book about debugging. Do you want to pitch something about that for me? And I've already been mulling uh, doing that for some time. And uh, because he approached me, I really like that. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's really important when you're publishing a book to have uh, the publisher on your side and be mm-hmm. as enthusiastic as you are for, for the subject matter. And mm-hmm. th- that was an important thing for me. So I started... Uh, working with them and actually did the book and wrote it. And the annoying thing is, as I was nearing the end of the book, when uh, I think he was in uh, in APRIS for 20-something years, and, and he quit just oh. as I was close to finishing the book. So, you know, the most important part of uh, book production mm-hmm. is the end, essentially the marketing and everything, getting the word out. Mm-hmm. And now he's not there, and it's kind of uh, I don't have anyone in APRES anymore that's you know an advocate for me, mm-hmm. which is an important part in any endeavor like this. So it's it's kind of a bummer. Uh, but uh, the book itself, during the writing at least, he was there and was very supportive and active as part of that. And um, 
So the book was mostly pretty easy to write because I've been working, essentially I've been creating a debugger for the past few years. And even before that, uh, working on JVMs, I did a lot of JDWP and all of that sort of work. So it's mostly just, you know, a brain dump of a lot of the stuff that I've been doing. Uh, Also as a consultant, you know, as, as, uh, as you go to companies and run into the worst problems possible. So all of the tricks and and, uh, things that we do. And I looked at debugging books in general to get a sense of what's already available. And the picking is very slim. There are a few books, uh, but not that many that are actually about debugging. And most of them are very, very academic in uh, in their approach. They uh, look too much at the theory and those mm-hmm. that do look at the tools tend to be very old in some cases, you know. Um, yeah, that's what I wanted to they, say. There's they, actually no books. Uh, so it's really interesting, fresh topic. So this, your book is unique, yeah, I would yeah. say. Yeah, there, there aren't many books in, in this subject. And the problem is it's a very amorphous subject. You know, debugging is a different experience every time. And the theory is relatively, the theory of debugging does exist, and it's something that that is academically discussed, but it's also not subject for an entire book, although some people did write entire books about that theory. I think they're mostly very repetitive, Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to write that. I don't don't like books like that. Question back to Mm -hmm. Lightrun. So you spent time writing Java code there? Yeah, yeah. I literally wrote the implementation of Lightrun because, you know, I was... The first developer that wasn't a founder. And what is Lightrun? So, if you if you if you buy Lightrun, what do you get? So uh, the way it's a developer observability tool. So you get yeah. a backend server either in SaaS or installed on premise, mm-hmm. and it essentially manages all the agents. You get an, an, a Java agent that you connect to um, to the VM to either Java or it also supports Node, Python, and uh, I think now also .NET. And you can essentially connect the agent to your runtime and mm-hmm. run with that agent. Then the runtime connects to the Lightrun management server. And you, from your IDE, either IntelliJ or Visual Studio Code, you can connect to the management server and essentially perform observability operations. So uh, one example would be placing a snapshot, and then you get something that's very similar to a breakpoint, but it doesn't break. So mm-hmm. in production, if you'd put a breakpoint on a remote debugging, it would stop the production. This isn't something you want to do. It might also take up too much CPU, which would also mm-hmm. hurt production. Mm-hmm. So Lightrun runs in a sandbox. It prevents you from modifying code. So you don't get actual access to production. Production is still secure. And you can essentially, um, and it also throttles you from adding too much uh observability information. So if you take too much CPU, it sort of uh, shuts you down and keeps the server running smoothly. Mm -hmm. But it gives you a stack trace with all the variable values and everything that you need and lets you do it conditionally. It also lets you inject logs into production. So if you forgot to add a log in a particular line and you see a bug and you say, wait, I wish there was a log right here to tell me what happened here. You can inject it dynamically and then it would appear you can add metrics to measure the time it takes between uh, line X and line Y. 
or okay. a, a, the time it takes to execute a method, all sorts of things like that that you would normally do uh, in a debugger. But at production and at scale, it's really difficult. So one of the things you can do, you can not just add it to one server in production, you can add it to a tag which groups together several uh, server instances and then get uh, results that are uh, compounded. And that way, if a user might hit one server here and another server there, you can actually uh, get the results regardless of which one he hit. And that way you can actually debug production. This is useful. Without, and what's also useful, you will maybe mm -hmm. could see whether you know the load balancer is not properly configured. Was it also so in production? Exactly. Yeah. You can see everything. You can see things like, you know, normally in an observability solution, you can see if someone uses the web service. But this mm -hmm. tells you if a web service is being used. Lots of mm -hmm. times you're in the ID, you're looking at an if statement. Does anyone ever reach the else statement here? Ever. Mm -hmm. place a counter, and you can see exactly how many people in production reach the else statement, mm -hmm. right? You can mm -hmm. even say, wait, does anyone from this country or any user of this type ever reach that else statement? Mm -hmm. No problem. Place a counter, answer that. You can say, okay, wait, is this thing, does this thing ever happen? And if so, what's the state? Uh, who calls this uh, mm -hmm this code, place a snapshot, which is like a breakpoint, get that information. Mm -hmm. And it's essentially lots of times when we're trying to debug something that's uh, complex that we need to essentially, one of the first things we need to do is reproduce the problem. But that problem is already happening in production. And this sort of lets us skip that issue of reproducing the problem because we already have the reproduction, right? We just need the information. That's why we don't want to reproduce. So Lightran helps you skip that stage of reproducing and fix instantly. And with problems of production, the scale lots of times is the problem. So reproducing mm -hmm. some of these things is nearly impossible uh, locally. And you need to do all sorts of tricks to reach that stage. But with uh, observability, you can sort of skip ahead. Mm -hmm. And up until now, observability was this huge and powerful tool for DevOps and not for developers. We kind of uh, were segregated away from production, which is a shame. You know, mm -hmm. we also need to support production and fix things there. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's an important step in the right direction, I think. And lots of big companies I know are using Lightran, huge companies. And, uh, and I think in some cases, I talk to, talked to vendors who have no other way to debug these things. Because with microservices, it, it, uh, the situation sometimes exists where they don't have a local production uh, uh, mm -hmm. environment where they can reproduce things. They can only write a unit test or go to production. They don't have anything in between. Sometimes mm -hmm. staging, and that's even lucky, and, and they can't debug staging either. So mm -hmm. the only way they can debug is through observability and through tools like Lightroom. Which uh, is both sad to one degree. You know, I, I'm very much for local debugging, but uh, you know, if you don't have that, then mm -hmm. you know, it's a uh, it's a crucial tool for for some companies who are addicted so, to it. Interesting project, and um, and uh, mm -hmm. the host replacement reminds me you know, of the debugging capabilities we already have, right? With debuggers, so we can replace code. So this is similar. It also reminds me of no, it doesn't have code control. replacement. 
there's injection of logs only. The environment runs in a sandbox, so there's no dynamic code replacement for okay. security reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Theoretically, we could do that, but we don't want that option even, so it, w it wouldn't pose a security threat. The only injection is of logs, nothing else. Okay. So you can add a new log, and it's... Uh, and and that's that. And this is an important uh, part of it. And, and you and, and you so, say sandbox. What means sandbox? I mean, it, it is it like a, sp a specific so, uh, production deployment or yeah, specific system for production. So the way Lightran works is that um, when we get bytecode, that's essentially you know, for instance, if you add a conditional breakpoint, okay. So I can put a condition saying x equals five which will assign mm -hmm. 5 to x, right? Mm -hmm. That Or even make a condition like method uh, 5, uh, close bracket, and that's a Boolean method, for instance. But it also changes the state of the virtual machine because mm -hmm. I gave it 5 as an argument. So one of the things Lightrun does is first it reviews the bytecode. And if the bytecode has too many calls or has a call that uh, changes state of a field of something like that, the call fails, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it will actually not let you add uh, an action like that that includes a condition like, like the one I described. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, part one of the sandbox. It doesn't let you do any state changes. The second part is that bytecode doesn't run in the JVM itself. It mm -hmm. runs in a special mini smaller JVM built within uh, Lightrun itself. And that uh, specific JVM is has limits. It won't mm -hmm. do all sorts of things. So it can't really go into the wider JVM or use an exploit to, to elevate privileges because the privileges literally aren't written there. They're part of Lightrun itself. Mm -hmm. So a developer who uses this is also limited because mm -hmm. part of the problem here isn't external attacks against uh, something like Lightrun. It isn't exposed externally. It's uh, internal company security, like 60% of hacks are inside the organization. Mm -hmm. So I, I've talked to at least one company, uh, I talked to quite a few companies where they do remote debugging into production. Mm -hmm. And this to me is, uh, negligent at a level that you wouldn't believe. And I'll put aside, you know, all of the risks and everything. And, you know, there's lots of problems related to that. But the biggest one of all is a liability. You could literally mm -hmm. uh, be sued for negligence and uh, based on GDPR and all sorts of laws like that. And rightfully so, because if someone, if an, uh, an employee places a breakpoint on the user login code, he can get all the usernames and passwords yeah. of every user that tries to log into the system and unencrypted and everything. And it can be binary code. You can still place a breakpoint, obviously. And this is a huge, huge, huge danger that people essentially expose themselves. And because 60% of attacks against organizations are from the inside, from an employee of the organization, mm -hmm. that's it's a crime to mm -hmm. debug in production, to leave mm -hmm. JDWP port open is, is negligent at a level you can believe. Mm -hmm. And essentially an observability solution isn't like that because 
A, everything is logged. So even if someone does try to do something uh, negligent uh, or, uh, or malicious, you'd see that in the logs and you won't be able to delete it. And besides that, you can have block lists, which block people from placing snapshots in specific files or specific areas. Uh, PI reduction, which helps you limit what they push to the logs and all sorts of things like that. That prevents yeah, it's the personal sort of identifi- foot guns. identification, right? PI. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, personal identif- identifiable information is mm-hmm. things like credit cards and things like that. That if you, those who listening who don't know, uh, if you write something like a credit card number into the log by mistake, which is a mistake people can sometimes make, then uh, you're violating uh, the PCI standard uh, rules and might get your right to uh, process credit cards revoked because of mm-hmm. something like that. And also, also you'd be in violation of uh, laws like uh, regulations like GDPR, etc. So this is really dangerous. You don't want to do that by mistake. And there's tools like PII reduction, which detect things like credit cards and so, that sort of information and implicitly remove them from the logs mm-hmm. if you accidentally made that mistake, which you can, you know, just type, uh, write in the username and by mistake, the user has a cached credit card number within the a hash table within the user, something like mm-hmm. that happens mm-hmm. so lightrun has pi reduction and other tools also have that you check your logger this uh, lightrun reminds me this is like um interactive java mission control with some you know yeah. uh business um business background so it's scans is not you know uh, because uh, java mission control interactivity would be too powerful so it's like you know uh a, a hardened jmc java mission it's, control it's exactly like the experience of working with a debugger you place mm-hmm. snapshots and and logs which are like trace points or log points, and it's sort of like working with a debugger. More, yeah, but more we can, if you get millions of requests per second, you cannot just you know stop at end times. So or there is like the, the you the, never the stop. Break, yeah, the breakpoint the is break, like there's no breakpoint. It's snapshot. It's, it's, yeah, exactly. And this but you is get why stack J- trace JMC. and it looks just like a, you get a stack trace that's traversable just like a debugger stack trace with variable values and everything. Mm-hmm. And you see it, the way it's rendered in IntelliJ and VS Code is exactly like the debugger mm-hmm. uh, user interface because it's built mm-hmm. for developers. It's not built for DevOps. So you essentially traverse the things exactly in the same way. But it's an interesting and project and the, and, the, and, the whole, and the website looks great. So light run. Ah. So uh, it's an it, interesting one. Uh-huh. I'm sure they'll in, be happy to hear that. Yeah, it looks uh, amazing. So to all listeners, just you know, take a look at this. Um, what you remembered me of, um, it is a predecessor of JMC. But do you know Cronon project? Yeah. This is a very old one. I just said, I don't know why. If you started you know, to explain light run, I remember, I think, I just looking at the, on the website, it, is, uh, it, it, it looks by Nokia sponsored, it should be really old. By Cronon was um, it's more like more like a JMC Java Mission Control. Mm-hmm. This is DVR for Java says. So I will have you know to investigate whether they are alive because uh, yeah, so, it looks uh, in- interesting. Cronon so systems yeah. Mm-hmm. So time travel debugging, which is the genre where Cronon sort of came back, came through, is kind of uh, seeing a. Uh, a uh, revitalization to some degree. There are several interesting tools related to that. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big believer I- in that field. So time travel debugging is about running the application supposedly normally, but collecting all this telemetry from the application 
And then you can sort of debug the application in all sorts of interesting ways. Like there's tools like that that display flowcharts of how your application executed. And mm -hmm. then you're looking at a visualization of the execution of the application. And you can see how it behaved through the way. And if, if the diagram makes sense uh, mm -hmm. to you. Mm -hmm. And there's a great example of that in IntelliJ IDEA that not everyone is familiar with. Uh, which is they have a special debugger for streams. Uh, I know you use visual, visual Code and not uh, IntelliJ. For debugging, I would strongly recommend using IntelliJ because it's so much better. Mm -hmm. um, mostly because v VS Code chose to be simple, uh, mm -hmm. intentionally. Yeah. Uh, because v Visual Studio actually has an amazing debugger. And in Visual Studio Code, I think they tried to simplify a lot of the ideas there. Mm -hmm. So... One of the things that uh, IntelliJ IDEA has is um, a stream debugger where you can actually go through the stages of a Java stream, Java 8 stream. This is what I know. This is amazing. Element is so transformed. You can put, put a breakpoint in a filter expression, for instance, right? So it's inside Better. the chain. Yeah. Before, before the chain, you put the breakpoint before the chain, and mm -hmm. then there's a special button. And you mm -hmm. click that button, and you can actually see all the stages expanded mm -hmm. in and linked. And you see this object translates to that object. And you see a line between them. Mm -hmm. And you see how the map and the filter and, every, and, and how the uh, things get removed and things translate from that to this. And you can go back and forth and look at all of the steps and understand what's wrong with a particular stream expression. It's, it's mm -hmm. a fantastic tool. It has some pitfalls, like if you have an ex external influences, it just doesn't work and gives a generic error, all sorts of things like that. But it's very much, it's inspired by time travel debugging, um, mm -hmm. which again, big subject and lots of interesting startups there, but also it's still kind of uh, flaky. Yeah, also there is a chapter on time travel debugging. Mm -hmm. It's And also about the stream debugger there, It's all, that's mentioned in the first chapter. Uh, but uh, I'm, I've got to warn you about time travel debugging. It's kind of a letdown because lots of the tools there are kind of flawed. Mm -hmm. uh, the market is, I think if I'd write the book three years from now, maybe second edition, mm -hmm. you know, the story will be completely different. But at mm -hmm. this particular point in time, a lot of these tools aren't ready yet. For instance, mm -hmm. I've been talking a lot to a company called AppMap which I suggest you check out. You know, they have mm -hmm. an, a very interesting uh, solution where you can essentially translate Java runtimes into charts. Mm -hmm. And you just run the application, you get charts. And it's, it's a fantastic solution on paper, uh, but getting it to run, you know, getting it through all the nuances of every Java API and how it behaves and trying to get it uh, working it's still it, it would still require a bit of effort. I think in a year or so, they'll probably have the kinks ironed out and it would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, but at this particular point in time, you know, uh, if you're just trying it, be ready for, you know, some growing pains because it's a, it's, it's a relatively new uh, mm -hmm. concept. It looks but nice. I think so it's, I'm looking know, at it right yeah, now. It's, so there it's is fantastic. For Visual Studio Code and for JetBrains, for IntelliJ, they have plugins and uh, the chart yeah. looks really nice. So I put it also to the mm -hmm. show notes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a very cool tool. And this is another example of what time travel debugging can offer us uh, uh, moving forward. 
And Maybe we should I start today because it's also advanced time. Just at start, I think we, we have to meet again to go more deeply. But uh, just you know the basics, I would say even Visual Studio Code has some tricks, right? So um, the 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 the, the breakpoints is a is a is a no brainer. I mean, but already which are a little bit more advanced is you can you can have a breakpoints which locks. It doesn't stop. You can have a logging expression there. This yeah. can be already yeah. useful. Log point this and is trace point. Yeah. Uh, trace point. Okay. This is called trace point. And this is available everywhere, mm -hmm. but this is yeah. underused among developers. So this is what I like to do yeah. now, before I write system or print line. That's, that's the one thing Visual Studio Code did better than IntelliJ. It made trace points, uh, log points, more discoverable by developers. Uh, but even for that, there's more features around log points, in, uh, trace points in uh, Visual in uh, IntelliJ. So the capabilities, I have actually a blog post from a, a few weeks back, uh, maybe mm -hmm. a month or so ago, mm -hmm. where I give 16 things that IntelliJ IDEA has that Visual Studio Code doesn't have in the context of debugging. Mm -hmm. And there is a table and everything there that, that sort of shows some of these things. And uh, that's one of the reasons in my book, I only talked about IntelliJ because lots of the things I mentioned there just didn't exist in Visual Studio Code. No problem. Uh, I, I, mm -hmm. I have also license, actually, the complete toolbox license of all IntelliJ tools. Um, so uh, no problem. I just uh, wanted to mention that the trace points exist everywhere. So if it yeah. exists in Visual Studio yeah. Code, it also exists in Eclipse. And this is just underused you know, feature, I would say. Because yeah, instead of writing 100%. system on print line, you can put in all trace points and there's like a, a expression language where you can say, I would like exactly. to log this thing. And this is actually pretty, pretty nice. And they can be conditional. That's a really yeah. nice part about them. You can also, in IntelliJ, you can group them. And then if you're switching branches constantly, mm -hmm. you can turn them off and, off and on and essentially get logging to suddenly appear. If you're in the middle, move, switching context and going back, you don't need to suddenly add all of the logging back. You know, mm -hmm. you can kind of keep mm -hmm. it. There's lots of tricks like that that we can leverage. And uh, I have talks about that. I have videos uh, and the book itself, obviously. So, and it's all, that particular part is completely free, by the way, in my website, if people want to learn that, that uh, those capabilities. Yeah, but now we're talking. So we have trace points. And uh, <laughs> another thing, I don't know what to call it, is like, automatic breakpoint on exceptions. So maybe this is like yeah. automatic breakpoint. So, how, ah, what, what, what is the exception breakpoints? Exception breakpoints. Exception okay. breakpoints. But mm -hmm. so in exception breakpoints, the thing is that they suck by default. Okay. And this is something people don't, and, and they suck in Visual Studio Code all the time. IntelliJ mm -hmm. has a solution for that. The thing is, if you run- Are you working uh, now for, for breakpoints? <laughs> uh, no, although I, I did blog a, quite a bit about that. And, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, but, well, it's not that as if we have that many alternatives. Okay. Eclipse is hard for me to use. Yeah. And, uh, and essentially, it's, it's either that or this. And NetBeans, but, I used but, to but, be very big on it. But, uh, you know, not enough users by now. Yeah, uh, but uh, it's um, great. I think the, the NetBeans debugger was great. Yeah, it was great. I like a lot of things about NetBeans. Yeah, was, was the great. debugger in uh, in in dot in uh, IntelliJ is better because it lets you embed values directly in the UI, which is fantastic. And last I used NetBeans, it didn't have that. Mm -hmm. But NetBeans is great. As a Sun guy, I worked with NetBeans until just recently. Mm -hmm. I eventually left it for IntelliJ mostly because 
that's what everyone uses and I'd mm -hmm. rather align with everyone than, uh, mm -hmm. than that. Uh, but uh, one of the things that uh, breakpoints on exceptions, uh, the reason I said that they suck mm -hmm. is that by default, they stop at, on everything. You know, mm -hmm. the value of exception breakpoints is that they stop on everything. Mm -hmm. uh, because otherwise, you sometimes get an exception in the console and you don't even notice it. You restart the application, you kind of lose it. You never knew that you got the, uh, the exception, which is something that happened to me quite often. Mm -hmm. But if you have a breakpoint on all exceptions, you'll run into the exception, you will see the problem instantly and fix it. Mm -hmm. The problem is that if I do that, then things uh, inside the JDK will suddenly start stopping for you. Uh, start stopping isn't the right word, yeah, but, but, but will uh, we'll trigger uh, for, for this case. Stop so, starting, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> it's always fun. It's, uh, I think in Hebrew it sounded better, but that's an excuse. Yeah, uh, okay. Anyway, so uh, it, these breakpoints kind of hit a lot uh, and create a noise that you can't work with, mostly mm -hmm. because... Things like Java.net URL try to parse uh, headers, and because they use integer parsing, then the mm -hmm. only ways to catch number format exception and things like that. The thing is that IntelliJ. So has what you are saying now is that because the JDK libraries are throwing, you know, lots of uh, exceptions, logical exceptions, doesn't matter. No, yeah. like a parse exception because they cannot parse no exactly. uh, a string to int. You get an exception and it stops, but this is no issue actually there, right? Exactly, exactly. And there's positive. lots of these, and yeah, exactly, and they happen all the time. And I can't blame uh, the JDK because back then that's the only option that the Java API allowed. So uh, it, it makes a lot of sense, but it's problematic. So there's a solution for that, and it's th there's an option. I show it in my blog post about that. There is a blog uh, with with exception breakpoints that don't suck. Mm -hmm. And uh, the thing is that. Um, you place a breakpoint and you select to filter based on package names where the exception is caught. And mm -hmm. you can just uh, strike out the Java packages and the Sun packages. And once you do that, exception breakpoints on all exceptions work just as you would expect them to work. Mm -hmm. you know, but this was available in NetBeans as well. In NetBeans? Yeah, the, in NetBeans. There was a filter. I don't know Visual Studio Code. I didn't try this yet because my code is always exception free. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I would try yeah. it with Visual Studio Code. In NetBeans, I knew because you could exclude all the exceptions and uh, I use yeah. uh, NetBeans all the time and Visual Studio Code, I didn't try it. Um, so, so we have anyway, already... Anyway, it should break... be the default. Yeah, breakpoint, breakpoint, and exception. How how we call that? Exceptional breakpoint. Also, exception breakpoint and field watchpoint. And watchpoints. Now, watches. The yeah. watches are interesting. So what is a watch? No, no, not... No, no, that's not a watch. Field watch point. That's a different field thing. Field watch point. So what is a field yeah. watch point? So you can place what is seems like a breakpoint on a field, mm -hmm. but it isn't a, it isn't a breakpoint. It's a watch point because it, it, you place it on the field itself, but it will stop every time the field is accessed. So mm -hmm. you can define it to only stop on read, only on write, or on both. Mm -hmm. And essentially, it's it would stop not at the point of the field watch point, but rather in the point in the code that changes that field or that mm -hmm. reads from that field. So mm -hmm. if, for instance, you have a case where a value is read from a field and you want to know who does that, you can just place a watch point and see who does that. Mm -hmm. uh, the same thing is true if you want to know who changes that field. Place a watch point and you can see who does that actual physical change. Mm -hmm. And it's really convenient. 
So that's which, the which means we uh, could types. just write now public fields now and use debugger to find <laughs> out what happens. <laughs> that is totally that totally works. You don't no longer yeah. need encapsulation for debugging. Yeah, uh, but you do need it for right for good code. Yeah, um, I contributed once to Toplink, and I wrote you know a nice Java code with private fields, whatever. And they say, okay, this is a nice contribution, but you know this is not what we how we write. Like, why not? This is uh, too slow, and they just know remove private, remove getters and setters. Everything was public, you know. It was like it looked like C, but it was fast. So, <laughs> um, interesting. Uh, and now about watches. What is then difference between field watch and uh, watch? So the watch area is uh, you can you can actually watch a field, which is a, different from a watch point, obviously. And uh, you, you've got the, uh, lots of capabilities within the watch area where you can see uh, the values uh, that the ID deems as interesting for you. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I love about the watch area personally is rendering. So one of the things that people don't really understand is what do we see in the watch area? Now, normally what we see is sort of an interpretation by the IDE uh, of what's available there. So it's uh, usually just, if it's an array, it will just show us the size of the array and the elements within it. If it's uh, an object, it will show us the fields of the object. Mm -hmm. But usually, you know, when the field is ma uh, minimized, it shows you the two string value mm -hmm. of the object. Now, the thing is that uh, IntelliJ has a thing called renderers in which you can override the behavior of that area. Now, this isn't something that I can really describe in a podcast, mm -hmm. but I showed a demo where you can take a JPA entity and essentially have it say the entity X has uh, and pointed at a repository for, for the entity. Mm -hmm. And it shows you the repository has four elements in it. And then when you expand the repository, it shows you the actual content of the table as mm -hmm. entities. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, as a person debugging JPA code, you know, it's like looking at the table itself. And mm -hmm. the nice thing is it doesn't have any production impact because, you know, if you make two string that includes all the data, you might impact production because, you know, we sometimes log objects and do all sorts of things like that. And the two string value might become a hindrance. Mm -hmm. But renders don't have that problem because they're only... An anecdote regarding two string in entities, what I saw... Um they used a specific framework to have nicer to strings, Jakarta Commons link, I think, with to string, and they were proud of it. But if you have a cycle, also bidirectional, you know, <laughs> bidirectional relation between It will the entities, fetch all the data. It, yeah, it, there was actually an endless loop of two strings. Uh, so uh, this is also fun. Um, yeah. So two string is also an array of investigation because I see you know, lots of reflection going on, lots of frameworks which are absolutely not necessary, I would say. Um, a cleaner to string, which is mal even mal tested in, in unit tests, is better. It's, it, it has to speak to me. There's no value you know, to dump everything. And, uh, and in most cases, if you enable Heisenberg effect, right? So if you enable everything in production, everything slows down and the, and the problem disappears. So I think we will really... You are also talking about logging and tracing in your book a bit? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And also um, another tool, maybe, so as cliffhanger, memory analyzer from SAP, you know it? So I don't know the memory analyzer from SAP, but I do talk about memory debugging and IntelliJ IDEA. So of course. there's some capabilities there for memory debugging and... Uh, 
And I also I talk about. I think you are on the verge, chasing. you know, to to become a JetBrains employee. So it seems like. Uh, I don't think they can afford me. Okay. <laughs> but it's like an open uh, question. So um, yeah. I have to invite you back just to talk about debugging, if you like. So, I mean, we, we, we covered now some basics and uh, and then we can cover a little bit more. What I was interested, logging especially, you know, how to write beautiful logs and memory and, and more like, you know. Yeah. And also, I didn't even touch on this because it's too interesting. Your blog post regarding monolith and, and, and microservices, what I saw, because there's also mm -hmm. some, you know, discussion here. So um um and um I'm curious about your opinion about that, but um yeah I I actually um what I like about that so um listeners maybe uh, also you know um express their, their their thoughts about that so your entire you know path is like you know debugging is just the natural way to go for you right so you you work the entire yeah. career with low level staff you you know with the uh, with JVM, so debugging is, as you said, it's just a brain dump, you know, just just to think how to explain yeah. the things properly. Actually, this is the the huge effort. Um, yeah, it's nice. Where people can yeah. buy this book, and uh, the problem I have with you, you are writing another book about uh, Java twenty one features. So we have to finish this one, the series of this one, before the next one starts. So um, where people can buy your Debug agent, oh, debug agent everywhere. So I reveal this right now, right? Debug agent. Debugagent.com. Yeah. And this you can it's just got order the links from for APIs. everything. And, uh -huh. and should yeah. people prefer to buy book from your website or Amazon? So technically, I'm not a big fan of Amazon, but I can tell you that, you know, when you buy from Amazon, you essentially help with the sales uh, uh, rank. But one thing I've got to warn people about buying books from Amazon, they have this thing where uh, scamsters essentially buy the digital book, print uh, through the Amazon printing service and essentially sell it for cheaper. And Amazon promotes them because the book is cheaper. Oh. So you're buying a lower grade copy. And mm -hmm. this, is a, this is true for all technical books, by the way. If you're buying a book from Amazon and you see that it looks cheaper, sometimes it's just a, literally a guy who bought the book, sells it as, you know, as a new condition, Okay. And it's really just uh, printed at low quality and uh, and sold, you know, obviously cheaper and no one else gets paid other than uh, the scammer. And Amazon promotes that. It's okay. uh, a Did common you know practice. That? Okay. Yeah. It's only in, uh, you know, uh, some circles starting to get out. And it's very popular for technical books because it's smaller publications that can't really sue Amazon at uh, at scale. So the scam is okay. kind of uh, used So that. better everyone should buy the book on your website, from your website. Um, it's or from two books. Uh, one book from Amazon for, you, for the index, you know, and the other one as a backup from the website. This would be the best possible you know, situation. Uh, or at least if someone gets, you know. I'm good. If, if someone. <laughs> no need to buys, kill too many trees. Yeah. If someone buys a book, you know. Buy digital. A fake one then they should complain and buy digital, of course. Yeah, digital, I think, is best because then doesn't let the scammers use it and it helps the trees, which yeah. I'm a fan of. I love physical books, but, you know, I can't really Back then, I also published uh, killing the books. Forests. The digital edition, the problem was always formatting. Code formatting is always a little bit challenging. Yeah, the digital. yeah it's, this is, I'm this not is... a fan either. Yeah. Yeah. I also prefer the physical ones because I'm old. 
But uh, yeah, not old. I, I would that. say it is it is fun sometimes, you know, to Habits. to walk away from the computer and have something offline. We don't have, you know, because it's a stupid. We have our huge machines or whatever, and sit and, and read a book on a computer as a waste of energy, time, or whatever, right? So yeah, something like Kindle, Kindle device, stuff like Kindle, that. yeah, Kindle device yeah. works. Something like paper device works, mm-hmm. but it is very on iPad and and uh, all overpowered mm-hmm. devices is not appropriate. I would say. Yeah. 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 Thank you a lot. So debug agent. Thank you. Thank you. See you next time. See you.